Uh, we're in Isaiah this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles up to, uh, I think, 548. Uh, we're going to be on a journey over the next three weeks in Isaiah. And unfortunately, I'm only here for three weeks, which is a great sadness to me. Just let me move this in here. It's annoying me. Why is there a heater in the pulpit? <laughs> a, very, a very soft dean, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, we're going to be uh, in Isaiah over the next three weeks. Um, it would have been great for us to do chapters 1 through 12, which really is a section in this very big book of Isaiah. Um, and, uh, but we're only going to do the first six chapters. But I do hope the journey will be good for you. There are going to be some big things that we talk about over those weeks. And um, uh, there'll be some imagery and symbolism that sometimes we don't always get. But it's probably worth me saying up front, that Zion is the holy hill. Uh, it is, there's a lot to the word Zion when you read through Isaiah. But uh, I need to get into it this morning. Steve and Sue have three children. The days of their births were filled with joy and hope-filled expectations. As parents, few would have surpassed Steve and Sue and their children lack for nothing. Their children, however, proved to lack everything necessary for family. They were rebellious through and through. They knew their city and its depravity firsthand and, in fact, were involved in the depravity's promotion. No matter what discipline Stephen and Sue applied, every action of their children was an abandonment of their father's and their parents' teaching. In fact, they despised their parents for what they taught. Every advance of loving parents to spare them the disaster that followed foolishness, they turned their backs on. The great anomaly for Steve and Sue was that their children would show up at Christmas, birthdays, Mother's and Father's Days, declaring love that actually did not exist and offering gifts that came always with expectations. I wonder if you can feel for Steve and Sue this morning, can you? With a family like that? Because if you can, then you will go some way to capturing the realities of Isaiah 1 and 2. I have to admit that I've avoided preaching on Isaiah pretty much all of my ministry, largely because it's such a big book, isn't it, of the Bible. And I have to say at times it's really complicated. But it influences the New Testament so much that we need to hear Isaiah's message. The context uh, of Isaiah is given to us in the very first verse. You've got your Bibles open there. You need to see these things so you know what the Bible's saying, not just what the bishop says. Verse 1 gives you the context, doesn't it? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of, kings of Judah. It's a vision that clearly comes from God. It's delivered to Isaiah, who will then deliver it to a nation, the nation of Judah, which you will remember is the southern kingdom, uh, that's the part that was split off um, under the kings, earlier kings, King Solomon um, and Jeroboam in the north. We're dealing with the southern kingdoms. The context is Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, and Isaiah 
will cover in this vision the reign of four kings in the 8th century. And uh, uh, you'll cover from Uzziah, whose reign was incredibly wealthy, uh, fantastically prosperous, and we'll move through to the days of Hezekiah and uh, the threats that come his way and a threat that ultimately will sweep right up to the neck of Jerusalem itself under the power of Assyria. And uh, if you like pictures like me, when I read a book, when I get to pages with pictures in them, I think, oh, gee, isn't that great? There's a page I've read more quickly. Okay, All the pictures that you get in books are wonderful because you get through the book more quickly the more pictures there are, don't you? Well, it doesn't work in a sermon, but I've given you a picture on the back of your bulletin where you have an outline. Okay, And that kind of gives you a picture of the dates and where we fit. And Isaiah's call comes about 740 BC, and we'll look at that when we get to chapter 6, where we actually hear his calling. So as Isaiah speaks um, in this context, what you must not lose sight of is God. Because if you listen carefully to Isaiah, he won't ever let God get out of your sights. So if you lose God in this matter, then either the preacher fails or you fail. Okay? So keep God in sight. So we see the context. What about the audience? The audience is interesting. Verse 2. Because it, and, and hopefully it surprises you, the audience. You might think the audience is Judah. But look what he says. He says, listen, heavens... And pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. That verse sounds an ominous note for, for, for the observation of not just Judah, but of us all. Judah may be the place of the vision, but from heaven to earth, we and the people of every age are to listen and to pay attention to this vision of Isaiah. So, we've got the context, we've got the audience, let's press the audio. Verse 2, there is no softening up period like there might be in the football this afternoon. No softening up period to what is heard as the Lord speaks in verse 2. I have raised children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now friends, I'm going to say that's a really offensive start, don't you think? That's a super offensive start to this book I mean could you imagine going to the parent teachers night and the teacher says to you you know what your child's dumber than an ox you wouldn't imagine that would you you couldn't imagine going to coffee with one another during the week I know that many of you ladies go to coffee during the week as do the blokes it's nice to see that you do that couldn't imagine that one of the blokes sitting there having coffee turns to one of his mates and says you know my son is dumber than an ox can't imagine that occurring but that's what's actually said here this is the parent declaring that the child is not as dumb as an ox but in fact dumber the ox knows its owner 
It would be polite to call these children donkeys, but they don't even have the foresight of a donkey to know who feeds them and where to feed. It's not very attractive, is it? And it gets worse in verse 3, as God's people, um, it's, a, it's staggering for those in heaven and on earth, like us, to hear that Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And that is ridiculous if you know their history. Because God has done extraordinary things. You only have to take, for example, the Exodus, where they had the ten plagues and the freedom of, uh, from Egypt and the wandering through the, through, through the wilderness until they came into the promised land, to know that they've had plenty of education. Now remember verse 2 here. Remember verse 2. Everyone in heaven and earth are called to listen and pay attention to this indictment. But what sharpens my attention in this is that these are the children and people of God before the coming of Christ. Okay, that's who they are. But who am I? I am one of the children, one of the people of God beyond Christ today. Indeed, within our services sometimes, the minister will declare, we are the people of God and you'll say, some of you got it right. You'll be pleased to know 7.30 were dead quiet when I asked that question. His spirit is with us. We are the people of God on this side of Christ, aren't we? We are his children. And so if you are a Christian this morning, then with me, we do not listen to this indictment of the children and people of God as outsiders, but as modern insiders. If we sense, of course, ourselves caught up in this indictment as we work our way through it over the weeks ahead, then we need to rush to verse 16 and we need to be washed. And if by the grace of God you come to church this morning feeling like everything's going okay for me in my Christian life, well that's great and sometimes you can have it like that. Don't be embarrassed and don't be kind of, you know, kind of thinking, oh, um, am I too proud to think that my Christian life's going okay? If it's going okay, Good. That's great, we want it going okay. And if it is going okay, then make sure you consider Judah's situation for your ongoing future, that it be a warning to you. Oh, sinful nation, verse 4, do you see that? We've gone children, people, nation. Oh, sinful nation, verse 4, is not a title to take pleasure in as Isaiah lays the picture he is painting um, in words. Layer after layer, he adds colours of a very dark palette. And listen to the downward spiral of this nation's condition. You see it there, verse 4. People weighed down with iniquity. A brood of evildoers, depraved children. And how did they get that way? That's a really good question, isn't it? Because it's there in the verse. They did it by abandoning the Lord, despising his holy ways, and turning their backs on the only one who could spare them the tragedy that follows sin. You know, I remember uh, as a child being asked by the bully at school, do you want a belting? And I've got to say, I feel sorry now for that bully. I don't feel sorry for bullies very often. I think bullies deserve everything they get, to be honest with you. Um, But I do feel a bit sorry for that particular bully 
because the only thing more stupid than his question would have been if I'd answered, well, of course, I'd love a belting thank you. You wouldn't do that, would you? And wisdom at the time suggested to me that I shouldn't tell him that he might like to get an education instead of my sandwiches, but um, wisdom was important in that moment. But Isaiah's question here is is a much better one for those being bullied by life without God than my bully's question. And I so, so want to ask the question of my contemporaries today who suffer without the blessings God offers. See what he says here in verses 4 and 5. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? Now he could be talking in part about God's discipline at this point that follows rebellion. But I actually think the beatings are the beatings that come with sinfulness. You see, from head to heart in verse 5, everything that people had abandoned God for had left them hurt and sick. And still they turn their backs on God. In verse 6, without God, physically everything festers unattended. In verse 7, unprotected land, cities and fields are overrun by foreigners. Home ownership, centres of trade, fields of produce demolished. And then we read in verse 8, all that is left is like a hut in a paddock or a shack in a field. Now imagine you've driven along many roads in um, our region and seen a shack in a field. And here is this great nation and what is it reduced to? Nothing but a shack. And I've got to say, you know, when I read that, I think there are many people who have felt their own diminishment as a result of sin to the point where they feel like they're not much more than a shack in a paddock. And if anyone was in any doubt as to the depth of the problem, the surpassing wisdom of oxen and donkeys does not go close to the words of verse 9 and verse 21. See verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. And then you go down to verse 21. In fact, your translation uses a much more uncomfortable word. But my translation says this, the faithful city, what an adulterer she has become. You know, some people pride themselves on calling a spade a spade. I once uh, met a man, uh, when I first became a bishop, he visited me in my home uh, and he was kind of in my face and I said, well, look, I'm happy calling a spade a spade. He said, well, I call a spade a shovel. So I figured... Well, I could have said, well, I call a spade uh, uh, a front-end loader and we could have kept the comparisons kind of going and kept arguing, but I, I just left it at that. But if anyone could call a spade a spade, it's God. And look what he says here in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God 
you people of Gomorrah. He misses no one. Rulers and people together are caught up, so everyone's responsible. And you can't miss the point, can you really, with the use of the term Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, if I use the term uh, reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of when I say Sodom and Gomorrah? We tried this at the dinner table the other night. Um, and I said, when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think? And around the dinner table they said, oh, licentious behaviour, debauchery, drunkenness, uh, sexual perversion, all that sort of stuff. That's what you think? Is that what you think when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, in Genesis, those who remained in Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So the injunction really is to turn your back on those places. That's what he really wants to say to these people. Turn your back on those places. Don't look over your shoulder. Flee to God. But what I find interesting is that Isaiah seems to use Sodom and Gomorrah in the first instance to attack the facade of religion. And while interesting to a contemporary reader like myself, what I find applicationally confronting is that God still hates religious facades. Verse 11, he speaks of their sacrifices. Verse 12, their appearances at church and their offerings in verse 13. They count for nothing where hypocrisy is concerned. And in verses 13 to 14, iniquity with their religious festivals, well, that is just an hypocrisy too far. And while we are in Isaiah this morning, I wonder if Christmas and Easter's for us could be the socially acceptable religious festival attended with unaddressed iniquity and hypocrisy today. It's important to answer that question, actually. Really important to answer that question because what follows is quite scary. See, if you think these things don't matter because they really mattered between God and his people back here in Isaiah's day, then you need to hear verse 15. Because in verse 15, did you see what's said there? When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. That's staggering, isn't it? Do you ever think that when you go to prayer? I just expect him to be there, don't you? And I just expect him to be there for me. And to do what I ask. I just come full of expectation, irrespective of what my life is like or where my week has been. There's a moment of pause here, isn't there, for all of us. God doesn't always look at you favourably and he doesn't always listen to your prayers. And when we read verse 21... The faithful city. What an adulteress she has become. We hear an indictment there that we all understand, don't we? We understand the indictment. We, we begin to understand why he wouldn't listen. And from superficial faithless religion 
Isaiah moves to a people faithless in the marketplace where G for God gets replaced for G for greed. And should that surprise us? That from corrupt religion, the first casualty of godless living becomes ethics in the marketplace? I mean, it would be staggering to most Aussies today to read verse 22. Did you read it? You might not have got that far, but you were. The blokes in the congregation, seriously, they would blow up at this. Because in verse 22, their corruption has got so low that they water down the beer. That is wrong, isn't it? That's just plain wrong. They watered down everything else too. They do whatever they do with silver to corrupt it so that it looks like silver but it's not really silver. It's like that diamond ring the boy offers you. That's, what is it? Yeah, that one, the fake one. Fool's gold. But it's the outcome of their godliness. I mean, watering down beer is one thing, but the outcome of their godliness, sorry, godlessness, the thing that bothers me is the outcome of their living on the vulnerable in verse 23. Do you see that? Verse 23. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case never comes before them. You know, I could think of a thousand things that Isaiah could have used there as examples. But he goes to the care of the orphans and the widows, the vulnerable in society. He could pick on people for stealing and murdering. He could pick on people for their slanderous behaviour. But what what does he pick on? A lack of care for the vulnerable. I wonder how we'd go with this today. In an age where we, well, we don't have to care for the fatherless, do we? Because we abort them. And when it comes to the sick and the disabled or the dysfunctional, the old, well, we can just euthanise them, can't we? And where are the voices that defend today the rights of the vulnerable? I wonder if Isaiah in the 8th century BC speaks to us with a powerful relevance today that's almost scary. Now if you've been listening of course to the audio of this opening chapter then you might have in sight a picture of a really, really angry God and you think that all your suspicions this morning in church are confirmed. I was right. God is some distant, uncaring despot. But be careful. Because like a painting, say of the Mona Lisa, you can stand and critique it and say what a dreadfully small painting it is and how pathetic you think it is and then the curator will come over and say excuse me madam or sir the painting is not up for your critique 
the painting is actually critiquing you. So be careful here, for such a confirmation in your mind of this God might indicate that God is right about you. You just don't care about sin enough in your life. You just don't love the family of God like you actually want to be part of the family of God. And your religion is in the end an hypocrisy too far. You might comfort yourself, of course, in claiming a father who you can pray to, but discomfort the father who you claim. We've all heard sermons on sin and judgment, haven't we? And you may think, well, this is just another one. This is what the bishop's doing to us this morning. But I wonder, I wonder if you have heard the sermons on the emotions of a father whose every desire for his children is good, while every inclination of the children's hearts are relationally appalling. Because that's the message you need to hear this morning. You know, prior to 2009, my daughter was not in the best relationship with her parents. You could say that she was living dangerously. Words like disappointing, angry, frustrated, grieved, come to mind of course today she would say oh mum and dad I'm so sorry I was such a in the past can't use that because the children are in this morning okay and to be honest with you I don't think there's a parent on the planet who hasn't experienced at least a part time journey with children just like that But don't be too hard on the children because I don't think there's anyone in this building that hasn't put their parents through the same kind of tragedy. Is that fair? But despite her behaviour, or despite other kids' behaviour, you know, some parents go so far as to reject their children altogether, such as their disappointment. They just write their kids off. But I can tell you that in an ICU ward with tubes out my daughter's mouth and blood recycling machines whirring in the background, the only response of a loving father was to never leave her side and seek everything for her health and her good. Did she deserve it? What a stupid question. The question never crossed my mind. Why? Because I love her. We often want to kind of cry out to God about our deservedness of him, don't we? I meet people almost every day who tell me they're going to be in heaven because they're basically good. You know, I deserve to be there like they're God's gift to the world. And truly they don't deserve to be there. But does God minister to them because of their deservedness? Never crosses his mind. He knows the truth. Doesn't have to think about deservedness. He simply loves them. And as sick as our world might be, he will sit by our sickbed doing everything he can to win back our hearts. 
as you wade through your emotions about God, can I encourage you this morning perhaps to get a little bit of yourself lost so that you can see a little bit more of God and try and wade through the emotions of God here in Isaiah 1 and 2. See, on the back of such an appalling picture of the children, the people and the nation of Judah, we haven't stopped long enough this morning, really, have we, to notice the Father's kindness and offers. So let's do that for a moment. The fact God speaks at all, the fact that God speaks to this lot at all, invites us to listen That is a kind education, isn't it? I can remember times with my son where we actually had a couple of days where we actually did not speak to one another. I'm not proud of that. He was in the wrong. (laughs) But the fact, the fact that God is prepared to even speak to us is an exceptionally kind education for us, isn't it? Because he could just go quiet. In verse 9, the prophet knows what's deserved, and he says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. And we see that there is a sparing mercy in God, and that he longs to spare in mercy. You go to verse 16 and 17. It's an extraordinary invitation there by God, by a pleading father to come home, to be part of the family, to repent, to depart Sodom and not look back, wanting a future with God that God offers more than the past that you leave behind. Look at it, verse 16. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What is God doing? He's pleading your cause. Only a person who could never be part of God's family would see this request here as unfair or unreasonable. And the request itself is as if God is saying, attend to the wounds that sin has brought. Stop the festering that a life away from me has caused and truly become part of my family. And then in verse 18, what an amazing grace. God never leaves our sin-ridden sickbed. But he offers, in verse 18, to reason with us. As he speaks a grace that can take sin like scarlet, red as crimson, and make it as white as snow, like wool. Did you see that in the verses there? Why don't you look at it with me? It's a beautiful part. This is what Isaiah does again and again and again. He keeps confronting them with the indictment, but constantly keeps offering them a grace and a mercy all the way through. But isn't this extraordinary? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
God is prepared to reason with us. And yet amidst God's offer of reasoning, there are always some people who just can't be reasoned with, aren't there? You know those people? Just can't be reasoned with. What would you do if it was a member of your family who can't be reasoned with? What kind of lengths would you go to? Well, as many of you know, the conversation doesn't end in Isaiah, does it? But at the cross. Where a true king in heaven's family would come to earth and look like a shack in a field of briars. A suffering servant like one in Isaiah 53, painted in sin's bloody scarlet, offering to make us white as snow. You've heard sermons on sin, but I ask you this morning, have you ever listened to the Father's heart? Have you ever reasoned with him through your sin to the cross of Christ? A family member can do nothing more, it seems to me, in the end, than to give up their very life to convince you to leave the futureless surrounds of Sodom and Gomorrah for an eternity in the family of God. What more could God do? Well, I've got a sneaky little application to finish with. And I'm not sure whether it's right, but I think it could be. If I push you beyond Jesus, what else might God do? Well, I think it's worth considering your ministers, Chris and Simon, this morning. For they have left the worldly things to serve you as a church on behalf of God to reason with you through your sin to the cross and in those people you have a gift extraordinary from father to son to this very day God longs to reason with you that you as his children his people his church might come back to him. And I think that's great news. Thank God for the Father's heart. Amen.